Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the CEOs, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. This week, Lewis and Ann are speaking with Australis Capital CEO Scott Dowdy. If you aren't familiar with Australis, you are in for a treat. Spun off in 2017 from Aurora Cannabis, one of Canada's largest licensed producers, Australis is fundamentally the investment arm of Aurora, even if they are formally independent. This gives Australis a strong deal flow from Aurora, as well as the other channels the company has developed. If you have a real interest in the investing side of cannabis business, then this is the episode for you. Don't sit back, lean forward. Now on to our interview with Scott Dowdy. So, Anne. <laughs> yes. We're joined by Nick today. Hey, guys. Hey. Hi. So, Nick. You don't think I'm funny, huh? I I think I think you are funny. You've you've worked on you've worked off some workshop some jokes on me. Uh, not all of them are up there, but I think you're a funny guy. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god, dude! That was the most kiss assiest answer you could have possibly given. Who asks given. their employee that? Uh, oh, what are I'm you putting you on the spot, dude. Because yeah. because because in the intro to the episode that you guys are about to hear, <laughs> Nick on an open mic said, "Yeah, he doesn't think Lewis is funny." <laughs> well, yeah, your your joke just didn't land there. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there was a, a mix-up in the audio. He just didn't hear it. Oh my God! Sure. Wow, dude, yeah. dude, yeah. just Die put, on that put, hill, put, buddy. What, what, what is the flavor of lipstick that you are putting on to kiss my ass with right now? Oh my God! All right. Well, I'll get you a joke book or something, and maybe that'll help make you funnier. Though. I, I have the the old dad's joke book, and I mix that with my Mel Brooks compendium, and that is my that is my sense of humor. All right. So everybody over fifty is yeah, and that's funny. Fair game then. Oh man, you guys suck. You guys really suck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. I am excited for our guest today, Scott Dowdy from Australis Capital. Um, you know, the last couple of episodes that we've been recording have been these, you know, they've been a little different, right? We, we did the Willy Wonka episode. Um, you know, you will have heard um, Shay Aldretti from Gen X. You know, those were guys who are either trying to transition or transitioned from the, the um, illicit market into the legitimate market. We are talking with one of the sharpest investors today. It's a completely different headspace. At least it was for me in these questions, and I've been going through the last couple. You know, and as you were preparing for this, did you did that occur to you at all, or is this just me? Um, I mean, it might be just you because I was not on those interviews. Um, oh no, I guess I did the Willy Wonka one. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, this felt, ago. this felt more like, um, 
you know, like, like our usual, you know, investor focused, you know, which I think a lot of our audience likes, um, which I, I mean, I, I like the, the Willy Wonka, but that's, was a little bit of a left turn for us, which was super cool. But yeah. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, cool. Well, with that, why don't we get to, uh, our conversation with Scott? Scott, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the green rush. Yeah. No, listen, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, we've been looking forward to this conversation for weeks now. Um, so let's get right to it. What is Australis Capital? What do you guys do? So Australis Capital is essentially the beachhead for Aurora Cannabis in the United States. We went public last year in September, September 19th. Uh, we were a spinoff of Aurora Cannabis. Um, just at a very high level, Aurora Cannabis wasn't able to maintain some of the U.S. assets they had in their portfolio. So they had an idea of uh, spinning off those U.S. assets into a new company, Astralis Capital, and then through a dividend process, uh, issued Astralis shares to all of their Canadian uh, shareholders. Unfortunately, the U.S. shareholders couldn't receive the shares, so they got cash. And as a result, Astralis Capital was formed, uh, went IPO September 19th. And uh, from there, uh, obviously, we built a team. But certainly, we are positioned as uh, Aurora's U.S. play, specifically on the THC side in the United States. So do you see this as like a, a, a hedging of the bet for uh, Aurora? Yeah, I do. I think, I think Aurora has been ahead of the game. I think, you know, obviously I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk a bit about Canopy later and what they did with Acreage, but certainly the larger LPs have been looking for a way to get into the U.S. for a while. This is Aurora's way to do it last year. So I wouldn't necessarily say it was hedging their bet, but it was certainly a strategy for them to get an early look at the U.S., uh, a process to start building a portfolio through a partner company in Astralis. So I think it's both hedging bets, but more so part of a larger strategy in terms of their U.S. play. So let's stay with the U.S. play, right? And you mentioned Acreage and Canopy. What was your reaction when you saw... Um, you know, that, that acreage was, while not being directly acquired, you know, it was a hedge for Canopy on getting into the U.S. market. You know, they had bought the, the, the CBD company in New York State. You're sitting there, and what are you thinking? Yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, listen, Bruce Linton over at Canopy is a smart guy. Uh, obviously, they've been doing a lot of work, a lot of stick handling in order to come up with the strategy whereby they could do this. Uh, my initial reaction was, okay, two really great companies partnering up. Sounds really good. You know, I think the sum of one plus one there is probably not two, but it's maybe three or four. But my concern, I think, as from an investor perspective, both on Canopy side and Acreage, I think since the announcement went out, you would have thought Acreage would have gone up in price, their stock, but they haven't. They've really kind of been flat since this went out and Canopy's gone up, I think 15, 
Which means that there's more upside for the acreage shareholder, right? Because it's it's a fundamental discount at what the 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 the, um, the, the, the purchase was. So I think it's something like it went from being a 33 to a 43 percent um, upside for acreage current acreage shareholders. So it's like a it makes acreage a screaming buy right now. Right. So that's my point. My point is it's a screaming buy for acreage. Yet canopy's got all the upside. And I think my bigger concern is, you know, hedging the bet, which they've clearly done here. I'm talking about Canopy with 300 million. Who's to say in two, three, four years, acreage is still a dominant MSO in the United States? Who's to say that in the states they're operating, they don't issue another dozen or two dozen licenses? So I think from a Canopy perspective, they are hedging their bet, and it's it's a significant risk to them, whereas for acreage, it's all upside, as far as I'm concerned. Well, and it's funny because other people who uh, and and a couple of full disclosures: Aurora is a client, acreage is a client, um, and nothing that we are discussing is inside information. Um, but I I have heard people say in the industry that acreage actually left a tremendous amount of money on the table that they sold out early. Um, you know, so, you know, it's hard to, uh, it's one of those deals that it hasn't consummated yet. So it's hard to really evaluate who the winner or the loser was, but putting that aside, was there a, you know, were you envious? Were you going, God damn, I want to do a deal like that. No, I wasn't envious. We've got a playbook that will roll itself out over the next 12 to 18 months. I think we're we're doing a lot of exciting things as well. So I'm not, I wasn't that excited about it. Number one, because I'm not a huge fan of the MSOs or investing in the MSOs nor cultivation. So I, I refer to those as, as the bookends of the space. So I, I wasn't, you know, jealous at all or put aside by that, that deal. I thought it was a great deal. I thought it was creative and uh, I'm certain, you know, two great companies, good things should happen, but certainly I wasn't envious of the deal. But what I liked about it was creative thinking, aggressiveness, uh, people looking to be industry leaders, vanguards in the space. So that's what I took from it, uh, but certainly not, you know, envious in any way. Scott, you mentioned that you weren't necessarily excited about that. So what does get you excited in this industry? Hmm, great question. Sorry, that wasn't that wasn't meant to be a stumper. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you go ahead, stump, stump them. <laughs> yeah, no, listen. I love being stumped. Harder the question, the better for me. Um, you know what? What gets me excited about this industry, to be completely honest with you, you know, my background is gaming. I, I come from a, a gaming background, fifteen years, and if you look at where the cannabis industry is trending state to state, jurisdiction by jurisdiction, the committees and the legislative bodies that rule uh, cannabis, and you look at where gaming's come in the last 20 years in the United States, you're going to see a parallel paths there. So there's already a, a very well understood playbook for gaming, which I think cannabis is following. So what excites me is there's so much sizzle there's so much action, there's so much deal flow, and this idea of going from illegal to gray to, to legal now, and 
all these different partnerships and people trying to position themselves, there's just significant opportunity across the board. And I think if you've got a playbook, if you've got a discipline about you and about your company and you've got patience, there's significant opportunity to pick up assets at an incredibly low valuation. Uh, so for us in Astralis, that's really our focus and what's made, you know, gets me excited day to day. Can we stick with the gaming for a second? Um, because, you know, there is literally no more regulated market in the United States than gaming, but for well, cannabis. booze and but tobacco. No, 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 not even close. Booze and tobacco are not even close to gaming. The, 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 there's one other one that's... There's one cannabis. That I, I know that is more regulated than gaming. Can you, can you guess? Cannabis. Can, I, I, I feel I, like we just tried. Like, did none of those? Really? It wasn't, it's, not can, it's not cannabis. I'm going to say it's insurance. Nope. All right, what is it? Hedge National fund. defense. Oh. Okay, okay. So regulated industry right you come from a a, a one of the, you know one of the the most regulated industries in gaming how does that experience apply to your investment thesis at Astralis you know just just the regulatory lens yeah i know listen one of the reasons why i i i got into the cannabis space was because of my background in in gaming and you know, we like high barrier to entry verticals. The higher the barrier to entry, the more I like it because there's usually less competition. Uh, so from, you know, my experience in gaming has been not just was it in the United States, it was in every continent on the planet. So I've got a very diverse background there, but, you know, operating in highly regulated markets is a good thing. The higher the barrier, the better for us. And interestingly enough, in many of the states in the United States and the provinces in Canada, the same government bodies and the same people that manage gaming legislation, compliance regulations are the same people that are managing cannabis. So, you know, there's been times already where I've walked into a room, for example, in Alberta, Canada, where the same people I've been dealing with on gaming for the last eight years are the same people I'm dealing with on the cannabis side. So. The reputation, for example, I have and our CFO, Mike Carlotti, who is the treasurer of MTM International, the fact that we have all these existing relationships, you know, we've been licensed in gaming uh, jurisdictions around the world for over a decade, that goes a long way in terms of establishing our reputation and credibility with legislators. So if you take that and add the fact that we understand and feel good about working and operating in highly regulated industries with high barriers to entry just gives us a comfort i think most companies don't have looking at the 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 ecosystem in cannabis you know you've got the 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 cultivators the processors the dispensers the ancillary services guys the services guys the financing guys the multi-state operators the lps i can go on and on and on but your investing thesis is to look for areas that have unique barriers to entry without giving away the farm what sectors in this ecosystem have the those types of barriers to entry because you know it's not that hard to get a license to process to 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 grow or to sell in open states and eventually limited license states will open up more so that may not be a good barrier to entry 
what what kind of areas in the the ecosystem are you looking at? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, you know, clearly the barrier to entry, and I think in this space is not say as high as it would be in gaming, to the points you just articulated. But as an example, we just bought uh, the Life Story genetics uh, process patents for Mr. Natural, who's a, a strain of, of cannabis in Northern California. This guy's a ex-Vietnam vet whose strains have been registered with the VA for decades. He's a white guy, Rastafarian. He's vegan, ordained priest. He's got an incredible life story. He's been cultivating for 50 years, and he only cultivates organic. So as an example, we'll be commercializing you know, his products in Nevada. So we'll be building a cultivation facility in Nevada that's organic. So as the flower vertical continues to expand and become more aggressive and competitive and prices drop, we believe being in the organic space, not to say it's a much higher barrier to entry, but it is because you need a lot more uh, process and, and specialized specialization in terms of uh, the genetics and how it's grown. Um, we believe, for example, in the flower space, focusing on premium organic flower with specific genetics and in this case, that's been listed and regulated by the VA for a number of years is an example of going into a space where there's a higher barrier to entry, less competition, and as the market normalizes and prices come down, it'll be a higher margin business. So, so that, that's an example. We've talked on the pod before about being a jockey better or a horse better, meaning do you look more at management teams or do you look at the underlying business when you're evaluating a potential investment? Yeah, so clearly we like the bones of the business first. As we look at these deals, uh, right now we're looking at, you know, obviously smaller deals that are more creative in terms of their multiples. But we certainly look at the bones first. We want to know that the business has been built fairly well, that there's a good bone to the business, a good skeleton, there's a playbook there. Uh, never, though, for a moment, suggesting that people are not important. But what I think the thing that we bring to the table in terms of Astralis is we've built a very strong C-suite and operational team. And not only that, because of our partnership with Aurora Cannabis, we have the mothership flying overhead with, I don't know, 3,500 employees that we have access to to help and assist in improving the assets that we acquire. So my answer would be bones first. The fundamental business is most important. Never lose sight of great people, but we've got a great team and great partners around us uh, that we can use to help evolve the business. Uh, Aurora has some of the the best R&D and research going on in the world. Are you able to tap into that expertise prior to making an acquisition to say, hey, we're looking at this company and they, they're making these claims or, or you know, they, they are, they're talking about certain ways of drug uptake or any of these issues, and then you can say and vet their science with the guys up in Canada? 100%. We, we meet many times a week on on planned calls i speak with terry booth the ceo of aurora many times a day and we have full access to all of their assets uh so certainly before we do a deal we can parachute in any one of their phds their 
infra- infrastructure teams, marketing, M&A, et cetera. So we work very closely. We certainly leverage that relationship as much as we can. And because we're their beachhead for the U.S., they, they certainly want to build value in Astralis as well. So, yeah, we have complete access to all of their resources as long as they're available. Kind of a, an offshoot to that. There's this concern that um, well-funded uh, Canadian LPs like Aurora and Canopy um, will start to swallow up the U.S. companies when they can. I mean, there's lots of, of hurdles to be able to do that. Um, what are your thoughts there? You know what? I'm a Canadian guy. <laughs> <laughs> I've been living in Vegas for, for what, 12 years now. But, you know, the reality is Canopy is already Constellation, so it's already a U.S. company. So if I have to place a bet, I will place the bet on the money, the creativity, the entrepreneurship of the large American companies over time. And I would suggest, this is just kind of me throwing stuff at the wall here, my thought would be the U.S. probably owns the top eight or nine companies in the space. The only company I see that might maintain its ownership, Canadian LP, would be Aurora. Why? You know what? I know Terry Booth really well. I know their board, Michael Singer. I know the guys behind that business. and. They're not only building a company and building value for their shareholders, but they really believe in the medicine they're developing to help people all around the world. And you can already see it in that they haven't partnered with a large U.S. company. They've spoken to them, but they've chose not to partner with them. And if you look at the infrastructure they've built, they're focused on medicinal around the world. You can look at what they're building at the sky and the sun facilities innovation they're bringing to the table i can just see aurora potentially being the you know the last man standing you know the reality is canopy is already a u.s company they're owned by constellation brands so you know that's my bet all right so let's kind of stick with this a little bit i want to pivot a bit though because you know over the last 24, 18 months, we've seen some amazing combinations, right? You know, you guys bought MedRelief, you know, Canopy buying everything from Abu to Acreage. And, and, you know, we're just seeing this acceleration of M&A activities. What kind of deals are you looking at? What, what's, what floats your boat? So from, from an Astralis perspective in Canada, what floats our boat is accretive deals. So certainly when I talk to our CFO and we're looking at deals, we're looking at deals between, you know, 20 to 100 million right now where we can acquire an asset with a single low digit, you know, multiple based on say 2020 EBITDA versus, you know, the large plays are going at mid-teens. So what floats our boat first is assets that are accretive and assets that are synergistic to the portfolio that we've already built. And we think over time, as we consolidate many of these acquisitions with these low single digit multiples, we're gonna create significant value for our shareholders. So, you know, as we look at our playbook, it's really about accretive deals, but also buying deals that just don't stand alone, but they're synergistic to the other assets in our portfolio. 
And most of those deals are kind of in the middle. They're not, you know, dispensaries. They're not necessarily cultivation, but they're in the middle. They're, they're brands, it's IP, technology, some of the ancillary services that you guys probably hear about all the time. That's kind of where we're focused. Scott, I'd like to go back to uh, talking about you personally a little bit. We're always interested in the entrepreneurial story here. And, um, you know, your cannabis journey, you alluded to it a little bit by saying, um, you know, you've got this gaming background. Talk to us about, you know, what did you go to school for? Did you ever think you'd be, you'd be in the cannabis business? And, and how do you talk to your family about it? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I've got, I've got an interesting... I think I have an interesting story. I don't want to bore you, though. <laughs> you haven't bored us yet. I mean, this is really interesting. So keep going, dude. Well, yeah. So, you know, I'm a Canadian, Canadian kid. I was born in Vancouver, Canada. I grew up in the prairies of Alberta where Aurora was formed in Edmonton. That's where I knew Terry Booth. Uh, I've known him for 20 years. And then I spent, you know, my 30s and early 40s in Toronto and then down here in in Vegas, but I actually went to school for business, business and marketing up in Toronto, Canada. And when I was in school, I guess at 19 years old, I started my first company. It was called uh, Canadian Ice. And I created a line of uh, toiletry products for men, like shampoos, conditioners, skincare products, et cetera. And I came up with the name Canadian Ice because I learned in one of my classes in college, we talked about, uh, export this and that international business and we were talking about how to create a, a great brand for export so i came up with the name canadian ice because people around the world thought about canada as a cool refined clean company so i came out with this this uh, this brand i trademarked it in the u.s canada i actually did quite well while i was going to school i had my own facility i had chemists i had marketing i had building my own brands. I was doing white label export. I had 30 people on staff. Meanwhile, I was going to school, trying to get, you know, my degree, um, did all that. And then I'm not sure if you guys would all know this, not being Canadian, but at the same time, one of the big breweries at the same time came out with a beer called Molson's Canadian ice. And then Labatt came out with Labatt's ice. Yep. So I also, so when I trademarked Canadian ice for toiletries, I also trademarked it for merchandising because you can't sell stuff without selling bags, shirts, hats. So I ended up selling the, the Canadian ice brand to Molson's breweries um, back when I was like 2021. 20, um, and then I sold the actual business itself and the assets to, to an international company. So by the time I graduated school for business, I had already started and sold my first company. And what's interesting about that little story, which is actually helping me now in the cannabis space, is that when I did trademark that Canadian ice product, I got lawsuits from, from Budweiser and from Dentine. If you remember Dentine Ice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I was actually the first guy to trademark and brand an ice-branded product which is kind of, I would say, one of my claims to fame. I would say it's cool, Scott. I would say it's cool it? as well. Get it? Everyone get it? Okay. Oh. The way it's helped me now is, oh. you know, I, I've already built a, 
manufacturing facility. You know, I, I'm a marketing branding guy anyway. So now in the cannabis space, that becomes very helpful. But uh, just to move on from there, I got into the uh, fintech business up in Toronto. I started a large uh, payments uh, services company in Canada called First Data Canada. First Data is one of the largest payment uh, processes in the world. I started First Data Canada in 2005, or sorry, 2000 to 2005. And then I started uh, with a company down in Vegas called Global Cash Access, and they provide all the payments to all the casinos in the United States and around the world. Uh, started there in sales, and I ended up being their chief revenue officer for, for four years. It was a publicly listed company. I was a CRO, Section 16 officer. And then when I left there, I consulted for a few companies, uh, took a couple companies public, was a CRO for another fintech company on the NASDAQ. So in a nutshell, I've got a lot of entrepreneurial yeah, a lot. experience, but I also got a lot of PubCo Section 16 experience as well, which has been really useful in my role at Australis. So just to remind uh, our audience, we're talking with Scott Dowdy, the uh, CEO of Australis Capital. Um, so let's lay down on the couch for a second, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be your therapist because, good, I, 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 I truly believe that pain is the best teacher. That, and I've said this before, um, you, we really don't learn from our successes. Where we learn is from our failures. So... What was the biggest mistake you've made? It could be a business career, could be your life, wherever. And what was the lesson that you took from it? Yeah, you know, that's a, obviously a great question. Um, you know, just kind of thinking, thinking here. I think, you know, I think from a business perspective, um, it would be, this is certainly a lesson that I learned and it's good and bad. But when I was with Global Payments, uh, sorry, Global Cash Access in Vegas. I was a Section 16 officer. I was second in command for, I don't know, what, five years. I reported to four or five CEOs over a five-year period, which is really great because you get a front row seat in all the good and bad things that they've done, and you learn a lot about their mistakes and their successes. But, you know, I was passed over twice as CEO of, of that company. And both times, the employees of the company and people in the industry would say, Scott, you know, what's wrong? What, I mean, you're obviously the guy that should be running this company. What is going on? And what I learned, my mistake was um, I was a CRO. I was pigeonholed as the revenue guy and an asset that if you took out of that role, it might negatively impact the business. And what I didn't do enough over those years was you know, spread my wings throughout the company to become more involved in other areas of the company so I wasn't pigeonholed as the revenue guy. So even though that you, you were seen as a very valuable, almost too valuable part of the business, it actually hampered my career and limited my opportunity to become CEO of that company. And ultimately, I decided to, to, to leave, right? So I think that was kind of a, a mistake that I made over years that I certainly learned a really good lesson from. As you see a lot of these, uh, you know, deals percolating or, or things being shopped, um, is there anything that you've seen yet that, that really like blew you away? 
either either in a good way or in a oh my god these guys are going to run into a wall way yeah so i think two things i think every day i'm blown away by assets companies that have these ridiculous valuations and they have no revenue there's you get to meet the people look at their playbook their deck and there's really no strategy but because there's so much so much sizzle and the market is so crazy and there's a lot of folks chasing assets I, I just think it's it blows my mind that there's valuations on certain companies out there that certainly have no justification for it you know and i think that's going to continue for some time but if i think about what truly blown me away and that I think it's a game changer is, you know, and not to kind of keep endorsing Aurora here, but if you ever have a chance to go see what they've built uh, in their large facilities up in Edmonton, uh, the innovation, um, you already mentioned their commitment to R&D, but if you look at what they've built in terms of innovation, their ability to breed and, you know, consistent crops uh, at a low cost, um, and just all the things they've done to take the, the cannabis space to a whole new level. To me, if I was a competitor, I would look at them and go, long term, especially from a medicinal perspective, unless you're doing that, there's no way you're going to be able to compete. So that's the one thing that's blown me away is the fact that Aurora's been able to innovate the way they have in the cannabis space. It's truly breathtaking. If you ever have a chance to go up there, uh, you should definitely do it. You must see every deal out there. Like everything comes across your desk. Reg- regardless of whether you've invested or not, is there one thing that you've seen coming that's not on the market yet you're, that you're like, that is truly revolutionary? Like, can you give us an idea of what we are, what, what we are not seeing, but you have seen? Yeah, I think I think biosynthesis is the real deal. And I look at all these companies that are out there and they're branding and they're, you know, edibles and the vapes and the beverages and you know, their reliance on isolates and distillates to to develop and market and commercialize their products. I think is amazing because once biosynthesis and they've already been able to replicate you know, the molecules, 100%, right? And I think it's the real deal. It's going to be commercialized, and the cost to produce is going to be a fraction of cultivation. So I think all these companies that are relying on and their entire business platform is based on using, you know, isolates and distillates to create their product are going to be in for a rude awakening as synthetics or biosynthesis. Well, that means the same thing for the for for the cultivators too, right? They're they're screwed. They are so double-edged sword. I would say they are, but the ones that are focused that have a more disciplined strategy and have a much lower cost of production, like these large growers, and that's why these guys are trying to get to scale. I think they got a shot at it. And the ones that are also kind of gearing towards the the medical side versus the recreational side have a much better chance of surviving. But the cultivators that aren't gearing towards medical that don't have the scale, I think will be in big trouble. Well, so then how about, you know, let's talk about brand, right? Because there's, there, there's not 
a real brand that has been established, a consumer-facing brand that has been established. What it's going to take for for whether it be you know a, a dispensary line or a product line to break through? How do how does somebody actually develop a brand today? Yeah, well, I, I think the big two issues now is you can't. There's no federal trademark, first of all, for cannabis products. So you got to go state to state. And if you do trademark something federally, it's going to be under a different merchant category. So it may not be, you know, cannabis, it might be flowers, or it may not be oils, it might be a fragrance, you know what I mean? So from from a federal trademark perspective, in the United States, that's very limiting in terms of how you protect your name state to state. Two, once I think they enact the state's law or there's, there's, there's full legislation where you can move goods state to state, then you're going to be able to obviously, you know, replicate your brand state to state um, a whole lot better. So those are the, the, the first two limiting factors, I think, in creating a, a nationally recognized brand, whether it's an edible uh, or even a dispensary for that, for that matter. Uh, what we're doing with Mr. Natural, and that's the organic flour um, company we bought, we truly believe that that life story, that brand can be a national brand, and that's our goal for it. But until you can trademark things nationally, until you can move state to state, it's going to be difficult. Are there any other brands that you uh, have come across that, you know, that are just killing it? Like, you know, uh, of course, they have all of these parameters and, and you know, uh, regulations keeping them within the state. But is there a brand in like California or Nevada or Oregon where you're just like, oh, man, that's going to that's going to take off as soon as like something like the States Act passes? I don't you know, that's a really good question. I really don't think so. I think there's certain brands that do a really good job in Las Vegas. And then I go to LA and I don't see it in any, in a dispensary. So it's, you know, I don't think anyone brands done an amazing job in terms of being distributed through brands state to state. So no name kind of percolates to the top at this point. Um, what I will though say is this, you know, this whole idea of just developing a product, whether it's a flower and edible and putting a funky, cool name on it, to me, this doesn't work. It's too shallow, right? So for me, it's more about, is there a story behind that brand? Um, you know, does it have legs? Is it an amazing product? Is, is there a point of difference about that product than any others? You know, one of the things we see in the market is there's really not a lot of innovation in terms of the products that are out there. It's like everything is me too. All right, you did that. We'll do it too, and we'll try to make it a little better. So I think until somebody comes up with a with a, a life story type brand that's got real legs, and they're creating products that are not me too products, I think you'll have regional success, but it'll be hard. They'll be hard pressed to, to have national success. Do you think the there are a ton of celebrities um, and influencers getting into the business, and they've been, you know, uh, you, you know consumers, you know, longtime consumers like Chelsea Handler or Snoop Dogg or Wiz Khalifa, do you think that that will help uh, further the story of a brand? Or do you think that's just trying to put a face on a, on a brand without really understanding, you know, what that brand is about? I, I guess what I'm asking is, do celebrities help or hurt here? 
Yeah, listen, I, I think it's both, right? I think some some of those uh, little businesses are, are cash grabs. Hey, I've got a great name. I've got a huge social media following. Let's get a couple of SKUs, slap my name on it, put it in a bunch of stores, and let's see what happens. So I think I think most of them will fail, but certainly some of them, where, the, where these celebrities have a huge social media following and network, let's be honest, it's 2019 and social media is a huge influencer. People like to consume products and share their experience with their friends and their family and their social media network. So that model is compelling, but I think, I think some may have limited success near-term and very few will have long-term success, but the ones that do have long-term success could do really well. You guys are a public company. Can we talk a little bit about the structure of your company? Um, are you going to have to go back to the market and raise more capital? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so we went, uh, as I said, public last year. We did two private placements, um, one for $17 million, one for 32 total 49 essentially both non-brokered uh, through friends and family, uh, through our, you know, at Astralis and Aurora. We will be raising more money in 2019. Uh, we've got, you know, several irons in the fire. Uh, we'll also be working with, you know, Aurora in terms of, uh, you know, tapping markets that a lot of companies our size couldn't. So I would say in 2019, you're certainly going to see Astralis uh, bring in more cash. You're going to see a serious, uh, a, a series of deals in play. Probably do six or seven more deals this year. And the size, I'm sorry, again, the size of the deals tend to be? I think this year you'll see the deals that Strauss does between 20 and 200 million. So to date, most of our deals have been a little smaller than that, but certainly we'll be stepping things up in 2019. Very cool. Uh, so we are we are just about at the end of the show. Um, and we like to ask our guests all the same type of question at the end, which is, oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's it's while you were sleeping. Right. What is the most undertold story in cannabis? If you could talk to the Globe and Mail or the New York Times or 60 Minutes, what story would you be pitching them to be telling right now? I would say. Uh, you know, I already mentioned the biosynthesis play. I think that's a big story. But because there's so much focus on legalization in the U.S., and I think it's, I don't know, I think it's two to three years away, probably closer to two. I think the idea a lot of companies have that once legalization comes in, you know, their stock price is going to go up 100% or revenue is going to jump through the roof, I think is the wrong way to look at it. I think that as soon as legalization comes into play, you're going to have a lot of competition. And the first thing that is going to be apparent to any existing player is their deficiencies first. So if you don't have a solid infrastructure, a solid team, a really good playbook strategy, I think with legalization comes a, a, a very, very strong magnifying glass and deficiencies will be viewed really quickly. And that big pop you were looking for, if you're not prepared, won't be a pop. It'll be a massive decline. 
And only those companies that are prepared and ready to compete with all the big players in the United States, you know, as Walgreens gets in there and CVS and Amazon and, and Costco, you know, I think legalization isn't that boon people are, are thinking. It is probably going to be a crutch uh, to many that aren't prepared for it. Um, I'm not sure that's a good answer, but that, that's something I think about a lot. I thought that was an excellent answer. Um, I think we're done, and that was great. Is there anything that you actually wanted us to ask that we haven't asked? Is there something you want to plug specifically? No, I, I would just say, uh, you know, I obviously uh, listen to a lot of your podcasts. I think you guys, I think you guys do a great, a great, a great job. Um, certainly for Australis, 2019 is going to be a really exciting year for us as we as we get closer and align ourselves with Aurora. And we've got lots of deals, so you know, just. Actually, you know what? I have, I have, I do have another question. So I want to ask about the Aurora relationship, right? Um, and I want to put it into perspective of the Canopy acreage deal, right? So Canopy has a has the right to buy acreage um, when and if the U.S. laws change. You know, Aurora can't have a, a direct controlling stake in you guys because that would put their their listing on um, the New York Stock Exchange at risk. But how does the how does the relationship work functionally? So, based on the spinoff, Aurora has the right once there's legalization in the United States or the TSX and the NYSE approve kind of a direct investment. They've got the right to buy 20 million shares of Astralis at 20 cents. And they also have the right to buy 20% of our float um, at a VWAP, uh, market v- VWAP. So they got the ability to buy up. Hold on. Can you explain what, can you explain what a VWAP is? Because there will be people listening here going, I don't know what that is. Including so what, it, what it really is, is, let's say in a month or so, it's, the industry is legalized and Aurora executes on their 20 million shares of 20 cents and wants to take Astralis out. They take the five last trading days and the average close price of Astralis. And that's the price they'll be paying for, for Astralis. Okay. So it's a way to normalize the share price or the strike price over a period of time. It usually goes between, five days kind of on the minimum up to like 20, 30 days uh, on the long end. So that's, that's kind of their, their buy-in right based on the spinoff. I can't get into details now, but we are working on some, some opportunities to get Astralis funds via Aurora, kind of leveraging some of the work um, Canopy had done in terms of their deal with acreage. So if you keep your eye on Astralis over the coming months, I think you're going to see some some exciting news on that front. Cool. All right. Now we're done. Thank you so much. That was really fascinating. And Thank you, Scott. Uh, yeah, we really look forward to, one, keeping the conversation going, having you back when you guys do something really cool and big. Well, that's great. Listen, thanks for your time today on a, on a Friday. I appreciate it. And uh, you guys do a great job on the show. Thank Thank you. you. We really appreciate that. That means a lot. Thanks. Our thanks to Australis Capital CEO, Scott Dowdy. Check them out at 
AUSACap.com. And as always, if you want to chat with us, you can find us on Instagram uh, with the handle at the Green Rush underscore podcast and on Twitter at the underscore Green Rush. And don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher um, and email Lewis all your hate mail at greenrush at kcsa.com.